you ladies. Now my challenge is going to be, will you stay awake <laughs> for this last session? Because the third session tends to be the one where I'm going to look back and I'm going to see some eyelids slowly drifting away. And I totally understand it. But we will try to stay awake. Um, if you can turn back in your Bibles and we'll just take out your outline to um, the second session of Habakkuk, I am going to begin with the woes to the Chaldeans and indictments and consequences. And actually, I just want that to be your reference points because I am not going to go through all of them. We are not going to have time um, to get through them. But one that I do, well, I will just tell you that if you read verses 6 through 19, these are God's indictments against the Chaldeans. And each indictment, there are five of them all together, describing what the Chaldeans did. And the whole premise of that, if you read through that on your own, the whole pre premise is kind of a very familiar saying, what goes around comes around. And that's what God is saying is going to happen to the Chaldeans. Things that they have done are going to come back on their heads. And they're going to end up with that kind of judgment. But the one in particular that I do want to look at, and that's the very last one, which begins with 18. And this is what talks about idolatry, that the Chaldeans were enmeshed in idolatry. And so for that one, that's the one that I want to... Look at, and I want you to look at verse 18 of Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Look at the exclamation point. I don't know if your Bible has an exclamation point there. In the ESV it does, and it's like, I, how on earth can you do this and worship something that you have made from your own hands. And he says in verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But look at the next verse, because we're going to talk about that verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a difference between idols and the living God here. So if you look at, let me see where I am. Woe to him. Roman numeral five on your outline. Roman numeral five. Woe to him who indulges in idolatry. And verse 18, this is, a, this is going to be the comparison. What prophet is in an idol? And verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. And I would like you to very quickly turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. And we're going to briefly look at verses 1 through 16. And something that I want you to note in this. And that is, in this segment of scripture, verses 3, 4, 5, 8, and 9 are going to refer to idols. But verses 6, 7, and 10 through 16 are going to refer to the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah is giving us a contrast between worshiping an idol and worshiping the Lord of hosts. So let's look at that. Jeremiah says in chapter 10, verse 1, 
Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. These were nations that worshipped the sun, they worshipped the stars, they worshipped um, the moon, all of those the cre creations that God had made, this is what they were worshipping, and they were dismayed. They would get, you know, if there was a blood moon, which we have, I mean, that's kind of, I've, I've seen a couple of them this year, they, that would just flip them out. They would get so scared because of that, that the God, the moon God was going to be doing something. If there was an eclipse of the sun, oh my word, the sun is going to do something. The sun is not happy. They were scared to death of those gods. And what he's saying is don't be afraid of them. Verse 9, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is, in it, neither is it in them to do good. Right now we're going to talk about God a little bit. But there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Now we're going back to idols. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But this is God, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he, this is God, utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his righteousness. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. And there is no breath in them. They are worthless. A work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all these things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is the comparison between them. This is God. The living God versus idolatry. So I want to look a little bit at the futility of idols. We read that they are worthless. They are futile. Isaiah 44, 9-11 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their, witness, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame themselves. 
is futile. Idols do absolutely nothing for us. And I want us to think about idols. We talked about that in our small group a little bit about what idols, what are the idols in our own lives? Things that we put ahead of the living God. These are idols. The deception of idols. Isaiah 44, 20 says, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? It's basically what we were talking about. It is so obvious that this can do nothing just as in the sex of a child. It is so obvious what it is. But this person who worships idols can't even recognize the obvious. He can't recognize it. He's deluded. He has a deluded heart. And I want to tell you, it is not something that we even escape as believers. We can have deluded hearts when we find ourselves putting our trust in something that is not going to be able to save us or to help us. The deluded heart is a deceived heart, number one. Jeremiah 17, 9, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We cannot even know what is in our own hearts. And I will tell you, I, when I was thinking of this verse, um, how it's deceitful and desperately wicked, the most deceitful and desperately wicked that I have seen in my lifetime, in my own, and I'm sure there's been others that have seen things before, but it's been what is happening to the Jews over in Israel by Hamas. When I am reading and seeing on the news what they are doing, beheading babies in front of their mothers, cutting breasts off of the women in front of their husbands, I'm looking at what they're doing over there, which is documented, this is what they are doing. I told Andy, you know, this is giving me a whole new picture of the desperately wicked heart. Things that I could not imagine that could be happening are happening over there. This is where the human heart, without God and without restraint, fortunately we have restraints in our society that supposedly we are punished for if we do things, and society itself will restrain us. But when you're not restrained, unrestrained, and un without God, this is where the human heart will take you. And it is a horrible, evil place to be. Ephesians 4.22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And when, when I look back on it, in times before I was a believer, and things that I pursued, I was deceived because I thought these were going to be things that were going to satisfy. And, you know, if I only had this, if I, and in fact, sometimes I still tend to do that. My poor husband, he will tell you, Janet, we just got this. Why do you think you need another one? You know, we start pursuing things because we think that this, if we just had this one more thing, that we're going to be satisfied. It's deceitful. We're deceived by those. I don't know if anybody is familiar with um, Rockefeller. Was it John D. Rockefeller? can't remember his first name. Was that his name? Anyway, the, at one time, he was the richest man in the world, and someone asked him once, how much money is enough? Does anybody know what his response was? One dollar more. There's never enough. Remember, we talked about that. The wicked are never satisfied, and we are deceived. We are deceived when we desire things that 
are above what God wants for us, when we just desire anything outside of him and think it's going to satisfy, we are deceived. We don't see the lie in our own right hand. But this is not going to satisfy. It's not going to. But we're going to take it a little step further. Ezekiel calls them idols of the heart. Ezekiel 14.3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. When you love anything more than God, then you have taken the idol into your heart. And I, am, I love the books that you have given away. I'm going to recommend another one if you can get your hands on it. It's by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick, who, she's a speaker and a writer for the Gospel Coalition. And she has written a book called Idols of the Heart. And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes that she says from there. Idolatry, love gone wrong, lies in the heart of every besetting sin that we struggle with. Who do you love? Who do you worship? These are crucial questions that are locked together. Because what we love is what we're going to worship. And if we are loving something more than loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength, it becomes an idol for us. She also says, if we have to sin to get what we want, or sin if we do not get what we want, it is an idol of the heart. Think about that. If you have to sin to get it, connive, trick, manipulate. Or if you don't get it, take that little tantrum, I'm not going to get it. You sin if you don't get it. Then it's an idol of the heart. The desire, and this is something that I thought of, that the desire for things and relationships is not necessarily bad. But when they become our central focus and push us to the point of having them at any cost, they become idols. And freedom from idolatry is impossible without the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, 1 to 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are in the world. So setting our hearts, setting our desires on anything more than we love God, then it's going to become an idol. And they're not going to last. The only, only the never-changing El Elyon, the everlasting God, can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. And that's where we're going to end Habakkuk chapter 2. And now we're going to go to the final chapter of Habakkuk. But we're going to look first at verse 20. We're going to go back. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And there is something that I want you to notice, and you're not going to notice it unless you go back and read it, because we didn't read it in the, it was just going to take too long. But if you go back and look at all of the woes, the, the woes against the Chaldeans, they all end with a, or they all end with a four. The last verse of each three verses in the woe ends with a four. For example, um, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For 
The stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It, it's giving you that consequence. But when you get to verse 20, or the last verse of the, on idolatry, it begins with the word but. And this is intentional because the focus is now going to be on the eternal, self-existing, sovereign God as opposed to man-made idols. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. Micah 1.2 says, Hear you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And Habakkuk 2.20, let all the earth keep silence before him. All creation is going to stand in wonder and astonishment at God and what he's going to do. They will worship. And God's message to Habakkuk, which is encapsulated in verse 20, is basically, don't worry, don't doubt. He knows what is happening. He sees the sin. He's not inactive. He is working. He is in control. And in his perfect time, he will act. This, was, this is what God is telling Habakkuk. Don't worry about this, Habakkuk. It's like, I've got it. So let's look at it. We're going to look, first of all, at Habakkuk having to recalibrate his brain here. And we're going to see despair is going to be turned to worship in this chapter. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to whatever that is, whatever, I can't even pronounce it. But he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Make it known, and in wrath, remember mercy. Job had a similar response when he was trying to figure out what God was doing in his life. And when God finally spoke to Job, Job said in Job 42.5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He sees God. And in fact, he says, and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job God's speaking and Job is listening and Job starts to see God's plan coming into place. He's repenting that he had questioned God. But what we see in verses 1 and 2 is a submission and intercession. First of all, oh Lord, I've heard the report and in your work I fear. So he's submitting to God's will. But then he says, revive your work in the midst of the years revive it and what he is saying is that lord in in the middle of all of this of what you did before everything that i know about your might and your power beforehand you are the everlasting god revive it let yourself be made manifest again let it happen he's submitting let it happen revive your work but then we see that he has an intercession and it's in wrath Remember mercy. He knows that he is that not only is Israel going to be facing God's discipline, 
But what is going to happen to the Chaldeans is going to be even worse. There's going to be a lot of turmoil that is going to be going on in the world. And he's saying, in wrath, remember mercy. And what I'm wondering, if he isn't recalling a past story that he could have heard in the book that we have recorded in 1 Chronicles 21, where David had committed a sin, and he had numbered the people. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but he had numbered the people. He was not trusting God. He was trusting in men, and he was trusting in horses. And for that, God was going to discipline him. And isn't it interesting that the whole nation was going to be chastised with the sin of one man? Our sin has a ripple effect. It's not just us. It affects other people, too. And David found this out, and God actually gave him three choices. It could be three years of famine, three months of devastation by the foes or being conquered by the enemies, or three days of pestilence. And David decided to take the three days of pestilence because he said, who knows how they have mercy when he's in the middle of it. And sure enough, the angel of the Lord went out, the death angel, and it started to strike down with pestilence. And people were dying day and night. But when the angel with his sword came up and it turned and it faced Jerusalem, you know what happened? God told him to put the sword down. This was God's beloved city where the temple was. God relented. And this is, I think, Habakkuk could be in wrath. Remember mercy. Which is what God does, isn't it? Even when we undergo God's discipline in our lives. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're believers, it's going to happen. All God's children get it. Because we are his children. And it says that he chastises everyone who is his. Everyone who is a son is going to get chastised. So you can count on it. At some point when you're drifting, I felt it. I've had God's chastisement in my life before. But the one thing to remember is that even in his chastisement, that is actually out of his love. Because at the heart of the righteousness of God, his righteousness and justice, which sin has to be dealt with, but at the heart of it in God is his steadfast love. That is a hallmark of God's love or of God's justice and his mercy. He also loves us. Um, we use this verse verse before the Psalm 89, 14, is that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, but then I love that this comes after steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. He is loving when he is doing it. And Habakkuk is asking God to remember, remember your mercy in the midst of all of this. Unlike wicked Babylon, who would eventually be destroyed by God's judgment, Judah, his chosen people, would undergo God's discipline with the intent of bringing her to repentance and ultimately restoration. And by the way, if I could fast forward, that did happen. That did happen because then we have the beautiful books of Ezra and Nehemiah where they end up going back. There is a nationwide revival after the discipline. That was God's intent all along, was to bring them to repentance. And we see that in those books that we read how, yes, God kept his word. He did not destroy Judah. They did come back to him. But at the very core of God's discipline is love and mercy and his outstretched arms inviting us to repent and return to a life of faith, experiencing all the goodness and the blessing that he longs to bestow on us. I'm going to read a scripture for you. That, a good one. Don't turn to it because I have it written down that I'll read to you. But it comes out of the book of Joel. 
chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And this, if you want to see the heart of God, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rent your hearts, not your garments. God isn't interested in the outward appearance of it, where they would rip their, their clothes and sit in dust and ashes. No, God says, rend your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God wants us to repent. If we find ourselves in a, series, in a, in a season of sin of our lives, he is his mercy and his grace are so extended to us to return. This is what he wants. This is what he wanted from Israel, his people. And there is a hope for the future of Israel. And it says, yet, a hope for, yes, God will not destroy his covenant people. He will keep his promise. And here's a verse that I don't, a couple of verses. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 30, 11, and this is, I think, a, crucial for us to know that God is not going to utterly destroy his people. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I have scattered you. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. God will discipline, and he will discipline his own children. He will discipline us when we are either going away, fully knowing what we are doing, or even if we are starting to head down a road that maybe we're not fully aware of what it's going to do, God will bring us back. He's faithful. His Holy Spirit is faithful. He is our high priest, and he will do what it's going to take to get us back. Jeremiah 4.27 says, For thus says the Lord, This whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Jeremiah 5.10, Go up through her vine groves and destroy, but do not make a full end. And Jeremiah 5.18, But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And what he's talking to is when the Chaldeans come in to take over and have a victory over Jerusalem and over Judah, it's going to look like Jerusalem is done. Read Lamentations. If you read that, even in the very first verse of Lamentations, he is grieving over the destruction and the devastation that was brought on Israel because of their sin. But remember, God promised he wasn't going to make a full end of them. They are going to end up repenting. Even in the book of Lamentations, we haven't gotten to it yet, Robin, but they are going to be fully repenting when we get to this. They haven't done it. Not yet, but they will when we get through that book. But this is where we need to reset the default and start focusing on the mighty deeds of the Lord. And we are going to find that in verses 3 we see 3 through 15 and I am going to read them to you because this is now where Habakkuk is going to start recounting and focusing on the mighty 
deeds of the Lord. He is going to remember that through scripture that he would have had. He would have known about the plagues that came on Egypt. That was already written down. He would know about the crossing of the Red Sea. He would know how God went before them and destroyed their enemies before him. Habakkuk could read this. And so this is what he's doing. He's now going to remember all of this. And it's kind of in a poetic form. But I'm going to read for you, starting with verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, and rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. We're talking about the giving of the law. This is when God came down on Mount Sinai. It says, Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. This is the flood. This is when God judged the earth with the flood. His eyes were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? When you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows? You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the horse of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter you, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You tra trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And what I would just explain to you a little bit of what's going on here in this poetic form. Habakkuk is recalling everything God had done. And what he is saying in verses 5 through 7 his power was revealed through Israel's history as a nation. And I have a quote from Walt Wolf himself, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, that says, God is fully capable of exercising his might. He is a terrifying God to those who oppose him. Habakkuk saw that as God moved across the land and plagues preceded him and pestilence lay in his wake at his will, God can strike down his enemies with plagues or pestilence. He is all-powerful. He is as all-powerful as he is all-loving. His grace and glory are coupled with his might and majesty. In verses 8 to 11, what we are seeing here is that all creation is submitting to its sovereign creator, the Lord of hosts is on the march, and this is a picture of creation trembling at the approach of God. And that when the Almighty summons and his orders are obeyed, that's what he calls for many arrows, and his orders are going to be obeyed. I want you to turn to Psalm 64, and we're going to look at a few verses here. 
Psalm 64. I'm going to start with verse 7. It says, but God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. This is just another picture from the psalmist of what God can do and what he did and what he has done in the past. He is, yes, he is love and he is mercy, but he also is totally just. He's as totally just and as totally righteous and holy as he is in his love and his grace and his mercy. We don't just have, it's not that his love, grace, and his mercy kind of trump his justice and his righteousness. They don't. He's an infinite God, and he can't be broken up into little pieces. And this piece of him is righteous, and this piece of him is love, and this piece is holiness, but this piece is mercy. No, that's not the way it is. God is all of them, all of the time. But as the sovereign Lord with all wisdom, everything is meshed together into the everlasting God, the God that we serve, the God that Habakkuk served, and that's something that we need to remember. And when you get to verses 12 and 15 of Habakkuk, go back to Habakkuk, that is where you see his sovereignty over the nations. And especially in verse 13, where he is the Lord of hosts, he is Israel's defender. And if you were to look at Psalm chapter 59, and I actually, I, I told you, I'm sorry, I said Isaiah 53, but it should be Isaiah 59. 16 to 19. Let me read that for you. And if you want to turn it, this is a picture of God as the mighty warrior. He is the Lord of hosts. And it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on a garment of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlines he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. This is a picture of a mighty warrior. This is the Lord of hosts who is on the march here. So our application that I have is that just as God went before his people and defended Israel in the Old Testament, God will defend the church, his bride. And as Israel was the apple of his eye, and we find that in Deuteronomy 30.10, God cherishes the church. Ephesians 5.24 said Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Matthew 16.18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? 
So we have this picture of the mighty warrior where we see God is coming in and actually coming in against the Chaldeans. We have him, that same God is our defender that we have. And I, I get a little bit, um, I love the parallels between Ephesians chapter 6 when it talks about the armor of God, how we have the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, how those same terms are used in the passage in Isaiah, describing our warrior. But reality is going to set in. And I want you to look at verse 16. What Habakkuk says is, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness has entered my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. As he is rehearsing all that God is able to do and what God has revealed to him that he is indeed going to do, Habakkuk's a mess right now. He is, this is reality, and he's anticipating what is going to come, and he's horrified at it. Jeremiah was the same. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied during the same time. And Jeremiah 8.18, when he realized what God was going to do, he said, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. This is an acknowledgement of who God is. And as he's looking at this and I don't know what all is going through his mind, but he's thinking this is making him ill. He is getting ill as he's thinking about it. But look what he says at the end of verse 16. And this is what I call a settled acceptance of God's will. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. It's going to happen, but he's going to wait for it. Because you know what? Through this trial that he has undergone, he has been rehearsing everything that he knows to be true about God. And you know what? He knows God's not going to destroy. Yeah, God is going to chastise his people. God is going to discipline, but he's not going to totally destroy them. He's remembering God's promises. Um, but he is now going to accept it. In Psalm 64, 1, the psalmist says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. You know, sometimes our anticipation of an event or something that is going to happen is worse than the actual thing. And what we need to do is ask God, don't let me live in dread and in fear of what is about to come. Whatever it is, we hear that those reports come back and it's not what we wanted to hear. That test result is not what we wanted to hear. And our first response is what? We're sick. It's like what he says, my body trembles, my legs quiver at the sound. I don't, what am I going to do? How am I ever going to get through it? But don't. Just wait quietly. This is what Habakkuk is going to do. And pray that God's going to preserve you from the dread. You don't want to live in dread. Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so we can turn dread into quiet peace. And that occurs when we get our focus off our circumstances and onto our Father who is in heaven in his holy temple. That's what living by faith is. That's what the righteous 
do. The righteous shall live by faith. Isaiah 30, 15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But this is where we have to rein in our thoughts. And Paul tells us how to do that. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that when those thoughts of doubt, those thoughts of fear start to come into our lives and they just start to get us spinning where we're wringing our hands, no, take those thoughts captive. That's what your enemy wants you to dwell on. Your enemy wants you to dwell on things that will bring fear, that's going to bring anxiety to you, but you need to rein those thoughts in. And you can control your thought life. We're told to. We're told to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to know what Jesus Christ wants me to think if I'm not in the Word. I've got to know what His Word says in order that I can take in those thoughts. This is what Habakkuk had to do. Habakkuk had to just focus on those names of God. He had to focus on the mighty acts of God. This is how Habakkuk was able to rein in all those thoughts. And here's the conclusion of Habakkuk, and it's a new God-centered perspective. And I've entitled it, Even If. And you can fill it in. Fill it in for yourself. Even if this test result comes back that I have cancer. Even if my husband loses his job. Even if you can fill it in with whatever you want to fill it in. But he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. And these are my very favorite. I'm going to encourage you to memorize this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So he's looking to the future, and despite the present circumstances and coming judgment of the Lord, he looks forward to a future salvation and restoration of Israel. God will keep his promise. Lamentations 3, 31 to 33 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart to grieve the children of men. Micah 7, verses 8 through 10, and I love this. Rejoice not over me, over my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation, the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down in the mire of the streets. Micah also is looking for the day when God is going to destroy the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Judah. Habakkuk will now live a full life of joy, not in just circumstances, 
but in a life lived by faith. Habakkuk's faith in God, the Lord, Adonai Yahweh, will become his strength, so that his feet are like the deer's, able to tread on the high places. And I'm just going to read to you the conclusion. The only way that we will be able to live a life characterized by joy and strength is to live a life of righteousness, which comes by faith. Habakkuk points us to Christ, our salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Habakkuk's hope was anchored in his faith in God's promise that one day in the future salvation would come again to Israel. And we too have our hope anchored in faith that Jesus will keep his promise. He will come again to set up his kingdom where righteousness and justice will be the foundation of your throne. And just as God told Habakkuk, for still the vision awaits for its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not die. So we wait in patience for Jesus to fulfill his promise. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Habakkuk's hope was the same as that of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, and all those listed in Hebrews 11. And one day, our hope will become reality when we enter that city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's Hebrews 11, 10. And so until then, we are going to live by our faith. I'm going to have put up on the screen for you a song by a group called Selah that when I heard it, I thought this is such a perfect fitting as an end to the session on how bad. For our hope, where does our hope lie? We haven't realized it all yet. We are going to one day.